Thanks for joining us as we explore the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. For discussion guides and details about how to join us on Sundays, please visit fairoaks.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Great to see you. I love Pastor, thank you for your leadership. It's like we're just getting back inside, just learning how to worship again. It's totally okay to clap in here. So love the pioneers that were, and uh, yeah, it just feels like a family moment right there. Um, Hey, on the note of family moments, before we get going in the sermon, I want to let you know about some exciting news, and that is uh, this past week, uh, we finalized kind of the final stages, the final steps uh, in a lease agreement with Core Education Academy uh, to rent some of the unused space in the building next door over there. So um, yeah, it's going to be a really cool partnership. I said you're allowed to clap in church. Some of you are like, well, I want to hear the update before I clap. Uh, This is not officially a ministry of Fair Oaks Church. This is, we have some unused space over there and an opportunity to provide space for a really good school doing good work in our community. Uh, So I want to tell you a little bit about them, and then I want us to pray for them, um, because you're going to start seeing them running around here. The teachers will be in in August, the students will be in in September, so if you see school buses over there, if you see life during the week, that's what's going on. So um, here's the bullets of what I wanted to share. Core Education Academy. Academy um, serves third to eighth grade students, um, and particularly students with different um, learning differences. Um, So uh, they really specialize in everything from Um, dyslexia to ADHD, but really kind of any student that would be kind of left behind by the traditional school system, uh, they've really built a program that's um, meant to grab them, bring them along, serve them, love them, equip them, train them. And so um, it's a really cool school. uh, And I I think it's a great opportunity for us to um, put some of this space to use in a way that would uh, bless the community. Um, And uh, I'll just be honest with you so that um, they are paying us rent, so that can help um, fund kind of rebuilding some of the needs around this building. Um, And it's a three-year lease, so we'll see at the end of that. Have we grown back into that space, or does this become a very long-term thing? I don't know, but I think God's brought us this for such a time as this. And so I want to take some time in our service, so when I'm talking with them this week, I can say with integrity, we prayed for you. Not I prayed for you, we prayed for you. So uh, let me invite you to join me in prayer real quick. Uh, Father God, thank you for Core Academy, for, um, for, for your heart. I see in what they're doing. They don't want to see kids left behind. Um, they want to see your image bearers uh, treated as such. And so um, I ask that you would bless Lainey. Um, as she leads this school, I ask that you would bless each and every teacher as they um, teach and invest in these children. And I pray that you would richly bless the students, that as they come here and have more space and can invite more students in, I pray that this campus would be a life-giving place to them. Um, I pray that the years of faithful ministry in that church, in that building, would just be seeped into the walls. That as they're talking about math and science, that something about the grace and the beauty of Jesus might just pow, pop through. Um, I pray that you would richly bless them in this place, um, that you would offer us an opportunity um, to rub shoulders with them, that we would get to know these families, and that this would be more than just a rent deal that serves our church, but that this could be a relational deal that serves these families and changes this valley uh, for eternity. So um, bless Core Academy, um, bless this relationship. We ask you to be present in all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Um, Well, hey, if you've got a Bible, now would be the time to grab it. And uh, we'll be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. And, uh, you know, there's a painting by Raphael that I think really frames up uh, today's text really well. Uh, And by Raphael, I mean the Renaissance painter, not the Ninja Turtle. Some of you looked nervous, like, he knows Renaissance painters? I know a couple. I've, I've been to Google. I don't know. I've been to a museum or two. Give me some credit, man. So, okay, here it is. Without further ado, some of you are like, there's someone beyond the Ninja Turtle. Yeah, okay, there is. Uh, Raphael was a famous Renaissance painter, and this is his uh, final painting. Um, He actually died while painting this piece. So um, it said that some of his students kind of finished like the bottom left-hand corner there. So if you're like an art major and you're like, ah, the quality really falls off down there. There's the story. There's actually a lot that's interesting behind this painting. But you didn't come to church for art history this morning. Uh, You came to learn about Jesus. So let's talk about what's relevant in this painting. Why do I say this frames up our um, sermon text today? You see in the top half of the painting, you see what we looked at last week. You see Jesus being revealed in his glory and his eternal divine glory on the mountain. This is everything we looked at last week. You've got Moses and Elijah up there with him, the Shekinah glory of God. And you've got Peter, James, and John. I mean, they're literally being blown away. Life on the mountain is beautiful. They're getting a glimpse of the glory that you and I were made for. This is everything we talked about last week. And then... If you pan to the bottom half of the photo, or the bottom half of it, how's that for a 21st century person? If you, paint, if you uh, zoom to the bottom half of the painting, you will see um, really what we're going to see in our text this week. That um, is Jesus, he doesn't stay on the mountain, he comes off of the mountain and he leads these three guys, Peter, James, and John, back into normal, everyday, real life. And when they get down to the bottom of the mountain, that's what's captured down here. There's an argument there. I don't know if you can see it. Um, there's a boy that is suffering. There's a dad who's desperate. There's evil there. And I think the reason this painting is so famous is because I think that tension between the top and the bottom, it captures something of the tension that you and I feel. Like, I don't know your background. I I don't think you even necessarily need to be someone that considers yourself a spiritual person. I think we could all say um, that something about this world seems broken, right? Like, we were made for the top half of the picture, but so much of our life is in the bottom half of this picture. And I I don't mean that you feel that tension all of the time. Um, There are some moments um, that are kind of like those mountaintop experiences. And I know some of you, you're there right now. Uh, Some of you, uh, you had a kid get married this summer. Um, Some of you, you just got back from vacation, and so you're on the mountaintop, or I don't know, you were, and and now you're back, and you're coming off the mountain. Um, so there are these mountaintop moments in life, uh, but, but we also live in a broken world. And, and I just want to ask this morning, like, how many of you can relate to the bottom half of this painting more than the top half at this present moment? Anybody? Yeah. Okay. I'm seeing some hands. Um, and, and so here, here's where we're at in the Gospel of Mark today. We saw the glory last week. We're going to see Jesus come off the mountain today. And for everyone that raised your hand, and even for those that didn't, for the moments when you get there, when you are just exhausted with real life and a broken world, what we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark this morning is um, this thing that the Bible calls faith. 
Um, really how we can be like this guy in red. You see him pointing up to Jesus, how we can like this guy who's looking up and pointing at Jesus. Faith is this means by which we can experience uh, the transcendent and glorious God we saw on the mountain last week in the midst of the real life, everyday stuff that we're going through. You ready? All right. Mark chapter 9, we'll pick it up in verse 14. It says, and when they came to the disciples, so, so they would be Jesus and the three disciples that went up the mountain with them, Peter, James, and John. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. Um, So I said today's story, it's all about faith. This means by which we can experience the presence and the power of Jesus in our messy everyday lives. Uh, And uh, and in this story, we're going to see two real fights that we're going to have if we want to do this. And the first fight is found in the disciples' failure here. So um, Jesus comes down the mountain and he finds the nine disciples he left behind arguing with the religious people. Uh, and, and so he comes up and he says, hey guys, what gives? What are you arguing about? And before they can answer, this man comes out from the crowd and says, Jesus, uh, my son, he is suffering. He's being tormented by this demon. He's having seizures. He's mute. He's in all this trouble. And so I came looking for you. And you weren't here, but I found your disciples. And so I thought, you're training them. They're your disciples. And so I asked them to help us to cast this demon out. Now, some of you are like, that is intense that he asked these guys that. But if you've been with us in the Gospel of Mark, you know that this is their ministry. This is exactly what Jesus has empowered them to do. And we have seen them do that throughout the Gospel of Mark. Their, their whole ministry, we saw this uh, particularly in Mark chapter 6, it was to join Jesus on his mission to push back darkness in the world through proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. Word, here's who Jesus is. He's come into the world. Here's what, how you can find life in his name. And indeed, in one of those good deeds they were doing was casting out demons. This has been since Mark chapter 6. Going, going, going. This is the disciples' ministry. But in this particular case, they couldn't do it. this desperate dad, he comes, he says, help my boy, and they try, but they can't do it. Now, some of you are like, well, that's because there's nine, not 12, and maybe this is the B team, not the A team. But Jesus sent them out two by two before. So it's like, if they can do it two on two, surely just do the math. Even if those three were spread out across the teams that went up the mountain, they've still got guys that have done this before, and yet they fail here. And the question is, why? Why? Like, is this um, a special kind of demon that just is extra powerful and they just lack the resources? They could cast out, like, this level demon, but now they're dealing with this level demon and they just can't cast it out. And some commentators will take that route. Um, It doesn't seem like there's a lot of support for that in the Bible, but they'll take that route because that's the way they can make sense of it, of, I, I don't know if they could cast those out, but not this one. This one must be a stronger demon. 
But I think we're going to see something else in our text. It's not that this demon is stronger. It's that something has changed in these guys. And Jesus wants to meet them in that place. Um, But let me say this. Before we're too harsh on these guys, let's ask questions about our life. Because it's so easy to look at these guys and go, dum-dums, you were able to do that like three chapters ago. What happened? But could we maybe ask the question of our lives? Like, um, why is it that there are some times that we cannot experience the freedom that we desire? Why is it that sometimes we have victory over the sin and evil in our life, and other times we do not see that victory, we do not see that freedom? Are we the ones lacking resources just like these guys? Jesus' response to them, it's both troubling and helpful. Uh, Look at verse 19. He says, And he answered them, O faithless generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Um, Anyone feel like that's a little bit harsh? Like these disciples left everything they had to follow Jesus. I'm like, faithless generation, like mm, maybe the Pharisees, but these guys, these guys left everything to follow Jesus. But Jesus, he's not talking about their faith in an abstract way. He's not talking about a box they checked on a card when they were a kid or several months back. He's talking about the ongoing exercise of that faith. And in this case, he's not wrong to say they are in this particular moment being faithless. They're not exercising their faith. They say, how do you know that? Well, if we'll get to it in the end of the story, but we're going to find out that they hadn't even prayed. So these disciples, I want you to situate yourself here. They're trying to cast out a demon without praying. And so Jesus comes up and he sees this argument. He's like, what's going on? And they're like, well, we couldn't cast this demon out. And he knows what's going on. And he's like, come on, guys. You didn't even think to pray? Like, what did you think I was teaching you this whole time? Did you think I was teaching you a technique or kind of a a spell that you could say that would just work every time? You didn't have to think about me. You didn't have to trust God. You could just repeat the magic words. And I think maybe that's what they were arguing with the religious leaders about. That they're like um, arguing over technique. Like, oh no, I think you're supposed to say hocus pocus and then it comes out. And the religious leader's like, no, 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 that's stupid. You're supposed to quote this Bible verse. And they quote the Bible verse and it doesn't come out. And so they're, they're arguing maybe over that. We don't know exactly what they're arguing over. We know though that Jesus comes back and he diagnoses their problem. He says, oh, faithless generation. And he, he says this to these guys on repeat. Where is your faith? Again, he's not beating them down. He's not being harsh to them. There's an invitation in this. He wants them to see that I haven't been teaching you a technique. I've been teaching you dependence. And that's really the essence of what faith is. Um, faith, it's depending on someone uh, greater than you, bigger than you, to do something that you can't do. So, like, when my daughters come to me and they ask me to fix a toy that's, like, really stuck, and I'm just like, sure, Dad can do this. And I, pa, fix it for them. And they're like, that's amazing. You have magical powers. That's faith. They're trusting me. I'm bigger than them. They might think I'm smarter than them. I might be able to hang on to that one for a few years. Um, And so they're trusting me to do something they can't do themselves. And it's the same with faith, that we come to God and we say, I can't save me, I can't redeem me, I can't fix me, but you can do something I can't. That's the essence of what faith is. It's depending on God to do something that we cannot. And these guys, they started off dependent. 
Remember back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus sent them out with no money bag, no bread, no extra clothing, no money to buy bread, no money to buy clothes. And he sent them out in this posture of dependence to, to realize the success of your ministry will not depend on the resources you bring, but on your dependence upon me to do what you could never do in your own power. These guys started off in a posture of dependence. The Christian life always starts off in a posture of dependence. That's what it means to become a Christian, to say, Jesus, I can't save me. I need you to save me. But one of the scariest things to me is how often in the Bible you will see um, people grow faithless after experiencing some measure of success in ministry. Um, And I I don't think we've changed so much today. I think that's certainly what's going on with the disciples, that we start off dependent. We come to God and say, "I, I, I need your help. I need you to save me. And then he fills us with the Holy Spirit, and we start to see God move in our life. And God, help us. Something happens where we can begin to think, hey, maybe this is happening because I'm starting to grow competent. Maybe this is happening because I'm starting to figure it out. Maybe I'm not as bad as I thought I once was. Maybe I'm getting better. Maybe I am, you know, kind of on the A team and, and God's now up in heaven going, man, thank, thank me for him or her because, wow, they are really helping my kingdom. And we start to think that the power is coming from us. And, and here's the thing. Some of you are like, I would never say that with a ridiculous statement. But here, here's what I will say to you. This is the reason you don't pray. And if that hits you hard, that's where God's been hitting me on this text. So if I could re-say it, this is the reason we don't pray. Just like the disciples, we think, I've got this. And so we depend on ourselves. We depend on our resources. Theologically, we check the box. I believe in God. I believe he's king. I believe I need him. I believe every good and perfect gift comes from above. But at a functional, everyday level, we live our lives dependent on our own resources. And the reason that we don't pray, or, or maybe some of you are like me, like I've been realizing this, you tack on a little prayer at the end, like, Lord, would you please bless all of that wonderful planning I just did for your kingdom? The reason that we do that is because we've functionally begun to believe, I've got this. And maybe I'll ask Jesus for a little extra Holy Spirit juice at the end, but we begin to believe that we've got it. Um, there's a pastor named Jim Simbala. Um, I, I want to share a quote with you from him because I've, uh, this is some God's been really convicting me of, like how much am I like the disciples? I don't pray. Then I'm like, why can't I see these things we want to see happen that I know would glorify you, God? And, you know, the Holy Spirit's been like, well, how often are you praying? So I read a phenomenal book by um, this pastor named Jim Simbala, and I just want to share with you one of the main quotes that the Holy Spirit highlighted to me in this book. Maybe this will be helpful to you. Because um, anytime you talk about prayer, it can become this guilt thing, like, oh, I should pray more. But Listen to what he has to say about this. He says, Prayer cannot truly be taught by principles and seminars and symposiums. It has to be born out of a whole environment of felt need. If I say I ought to pray, like several of you are thinking right now, he says, I will soon run out of motivation and quit, like we have all experienced. He says, The flesh is too strong. I have to be driven to pray. I have to be driven to pray. What he's saying is um, prayer is not an end in of itself. It's a means of expressing our faith. And, And I think the reason the disciples didn't pray, I think the reason that we struggle to pray is because we're losing this first fight. And the first fight in our text is the pull of independence. 
It's um, everything I was talking about that we think, man, I kind of got this, and I'll, I'll ask God to bless it at the end, but we live the Christian life so often as if we can do this in our own strength. And um, I think this is a particular challenge for us as Americans because we're taught, right, like um, from the moment we are born that you can do this. You can achieve. If you can dream it, you can do it. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, And don't get me wrong, there's a type of independence that's healthy. There's a lot of beautiful things about this country that have been born out of that belief. But if that is your ultimate belief system, it will fail you. That's got to be put in the framework of something that's true first. And so um, don't hear me saying all independence is bad. Um, Some of you, if you're an adult, uh, it's time to get a job and move out of your parents' house. Like independence can be good. Some of the parents are like, amen. Um, Independence can be a good thing, but it it should not be our vision of the Christian life. It... um, When our vision of the Christian life becomes uh, like growth means needing God less and less and less, that I could kind of move out of the proverbial house of the Lord and be on my own and be independent. When we take that idea and work that into our faith, something has gone horribly wrong. Because you and I were not created to be independent beings that center our existence on us. We were created to be dependent beings that sent our existence on the God we saw on the mountain last week who fills us, who empowers us to do anything that actually matters in life. And so I would submit to you, Jesus' rebuke here, like, oh, faithless generation, it's actually an invitation. What he's saying is, guys, don't go back to a life that can be explained in your own strength. Don't go back to trying to... um, Be your own sovereign and be the one that you depend on to come through. Keep coming to me in faith. Keep asking. Keep praying. Keep pressing in. Follow me into a new way of living. That's the first fight that we need to fight, the the pull of independence. We need to pull against that and say, I know that there's something broken in my soul that thinks I can lead my own life, but I, to be a Christian, means I know I need Jesus to lead me. I need Jesus to do what is good for me. I need Jesus to work through me. And that type of dependence will lead to uh, prayer, if I can use this term, naturally. Um, We don't get to praying by saying, I should do it more. It's when we fight the pull of independence and we realize how much we need God and how full his grace for us in Christ is, prayer becomes the natural outpouring of that kind of faith. Um, But now I'm skipping ahead because before we get to that point, Jesus wants to address a second fight um, that we're going to have if we want to live by this faith. So look now with me at verse 20. So he says, oh, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? And then he says at the end of 19, okay, bring, bring the boy to me. So the disciples haven't been able to help him. So Jesus, he calls the boy to himself. And in verse 20, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. So as this boy gets closer to Jesus, the demon inside of him just freaks out. 
And instead of just snapping his fingers like um, I think maybe most of us would do or maybe you would expect Jesus to do, he does something unexpected. How many of you are like, is this the time for a conversation, Jesus? The boy's like freaking out over there. But it's exactly the time for conversation because Jesus is doing what he's so often doing. He doesn't jump to the solution. He wants relationship along the way. He doesn't want to give this dad just a healed son back. He wants to give him a healed heart along with his healed son. And so he draws the dad out. He, he says to him, how long has this been happening? God, this is awful. This is terrible. How long has this been happening to your boy? And, and he's drawing him out because this father, it, or I should say this way, the disciples are not the only ones struggling with their faith in this story. This dad is struggling with faith, but his, his struggle, it's not with independence. He doesn't come up there with like Superman cape blowing in the wind going, I've got this, Jesus. His fight is something altogether different. Listen to his story. Jesus says, how long has this been happening to him? And he says, he's had a demon from childhood. So you don't know how old the boy is, but it's been several years, if you could just imagine. Um, and we're talking about a real personal evil being that is overtaking this boy. Some people want to explain this stuff away and go, oh, you know, he just had epilepsy or, you know, it kind of looks like a grand mal seizure. But they weren't unaware of these kinds of things back then. They might have had different words for it, but Mark will distinguish between healing a physical ailment and a spiritual ailment. And he is very clear in Jesus, who, by the way, made us and knows everything about the human bodies, identifies this as a demon. So this boy, he is suffering under real personal evil that is causing all kinds of physical malfunctions in his body. It is overtaking him. He's not only deaf and having what appear to be grand mal seizures, but it says the demon will throw him into the water to drown him. And if that doesn't work, it tries to throw him into the fire. Can you be, imagine being this guy's dad? Like, you're just constantly, we have one of our three kids. I feel like I'm constantly on the lookout. Like, please do not kill yourself. Please don't grab that. Please don't touch that. Please don't get up there. Definitely don't jump off of there. <laughs> Can you imagine being this dad? I mean, everywhere he goes, water, that's not safe. Fire, let's cook dinner. That's not safe. This demon is trying to destroy this boy. And it's not just this boy whose life this demon is doing. This demon is doing what Satan and his demons always try to do. Is They're trying to destroy and kill and take life. And Jesus, he is the life giver. He steps in. He says, that is terrible. How long has this been going on? And as the dad shares, it becomes clear. It's not just the boy whose life is being destroyed, but it's the dad's as well. I mean, isn't, isn't that true, parents? Like, isn't it hard to watch your kids suffering and there's nothing you can do about it? Like, that's where this guy is at. He's lived a, a very difficult life. In all of this, watching his boy, coming to Jesus, maybe there's all this optimism, like maybe Jesus can help, but then he gets there, Jesus isn't there, but oh, I get the disciples, I get nine of them, awesome. But then they can't help. All of this difficulty, it has caused this man to have all sorts of doubt. Do you hear it in his words? He says, if you can do anything, 
Like, he must have had some faith to come to Jesus in the first place. But I don't know if it was his boy's difficulties or if it was the disciples' failure or maybe it's the combination of just years of agony and pain and living a very difficult life and then having a moment of hope and having that being dashed. This guy is crushed. He's racked with doubt. And so Jesus, he's drawn him out. Man, this is awful. How long has this been going on? And he's just like, it's been going on a long time. It is awful. If there's anything you can do, I, I, don't, I don't know. He doesn't even ask for much. He just says, if there's anything you can do. I'm not sure you can do anything at this point. I'm so discouraged. I'm so racked with doubt. He's just saying, I'm just not sure anymore. Have you ever been there? Yeah. Like some of you... Um, you have experienced uh, significant pain. Um, I think all of us, if you live long enough, you will experience that pain. But particularly some of you, I'm seeing the look in the eyes right now that you have experienced a type of pain that is fresh at the front of your mind. Um, that you have experienced um, failure. You have experienced dysfunction. Some of you have experienced evil just like this dad. Um, for some of you, this maybe isn't your story right now, but this is the story of someone that you dearly love. And, and so I, I don't know what your story is, and I, I don't know if you consider this your church home, but I would just ask you if you would just grant me the honor of being your pastor for one moment. If that's you, that you just walk in here like this dad with all sorts of doubts, and you're like, not even sure if God's wrong, not even sure if he's good. I used to believe all these things, but I'm not sure what I believe anymore, if you would just grant me the honor of being your pastor for one moment, I want to say, I'm so sorry that's happened to you. The things you have experienced are not the way that life is meant to be. And there's a God in heaven that looks at that and goes, this is awful. And so I, I want you to just hear that because, uh, but I also want to say, I'm sorry that we haven't made space in the church. And I don't mean Fair Oaks Church. I've been here a year. I mean in the kind of church at large for you to wrestle with that doubt. Um, because there's something about us that I think we get very uncomfortable around doubt, and so we try to push it to the periphery. And so maybe you felt like, I just don't have space to ask those questions here. I don't have space to bring my questions. I don't have space to act, to act like this guy who is in the Bible and say, if God is real, if God can do anything, because you're afraid of being condemned, is weak and lacking faith. And what I want you to hear from me is you're not weak and lacking faith to ask those questions. Faith, it does not mean that you do not have questions. What faith is, is when you have those questions, it is bringing them to Jesus. So you can have questions. The question is, what will you do when you have those questions? Will you withdraw from Jesus? Will you withdraw from his people? Will you withdraw from his word? All the means by which he is present by his spirit in the world and kind of retreat onto your own and try to figure all this out and logic your way through it? Or will you come to Jesus and say, here's my questions. I need you to help me because I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. But that is what the Father does. And that would be my heart for you. Not that you would expect I'm never going to have questions in the Christian life. Some of you are like, what a downer. Like, he just needs to, like, have a good week and be chipper. Um, but actually, if you read the Bible, you're not going to find many saints that don't have moments of doubt. 
We live in a Genesis 3 fallen, broken world. There is evil around us. There is failure when even the intentions are the best. The question is not if you will doubt. The question is what you will do with that doubt. And if we want to experience faith, if we want to experience the glory of the mountain in our everyday lives, then this is the second fight we have to fight. We have to fight doubt. We, we don't deny it and pretend it's not there, but we also don't glorify it. There's a whole movement right now that kind of wants to glorify doubt, make it into like a spiritual ideal, like I'm not sure about anything. I'm so mature. That's not the goal either. The goal isn't to deny doubt as if it's antithetical to faith. The goal is not to glorify doubt as if it's the essence of faith. Jesus gives us a far more interesting alternative. Listen to his response to this guy who is wrecked with doubt. He says, the guy says to Jesus, if you can do anything. And I love Jesus' reply. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for the one who believes. I love that there's an exclamation point in there. Um, I don't want to fool you. There's no uh, uh, punctuation in the original language, but the translators are trying to get across what's going on at a grammar level, that there's emphasis here, that there's like a, if you can, of course I can. The issue is not my power. The issue is not what I can do. The issue is not my ability It's like Jesus is daring him. Oh, I can do anything. I dare you to ask me. I dare you to trust me. I dare you to express dependence and to say, Jesus, I can't solve this on my own. Can you help me? If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus dares him. Trust me. Reach out to me. See what happens. And from this man's quivering lips, watching his boy being tormented by a demon in the background, comes, I think, one of the most honest and faith-filled prayers in the whole of the Bible. He says in verse 24, Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe! Help my unbelief! And when Jesus saw a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. This man's story, it hinges on these words. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. What he's saying is, um, I'm racked with doubt. I have all sorts of questions. Um, I don't have my theology all worked out. I don't understand everything. I have unbelief in my life, but there's a part of me that believes And you notice that he leads with that. He says, um, there's a part of me that believes, I believe, I have all of this doubt, I have all these questions. And so he comes to Jesus with those doubts and those questions. And he says, a part of me believes that you can help me. Would you help the part of me that doesn't believe? Like, I can't work it out. I've had a very difficult life. I don't understand how you could allow this. I don't get it. But rather than pulling away from you and trying to philosophize this on my own, I'm going to come to you and ask would you help me in this place? He says, I believe, would you help my unbelief? So catch up. He admits his doubt. 
Some of us, we've only ever said, I believe, and we try to fake it until we make it. And I'm telling you, if we're going to experience the power of the glory of God in our everyday lives, we've got to be honest about that back half of the sentence. And I'm not saying you gin up belief. Some of you, like I said earlier, you're on the mountaintop. Great. Save this sermon for the time you're not. But when you have areas of unbelief, Jesus does not ask you to stuff it or pretend you don't, but he does ask that you would come to him. He will accept you as you are, meet you where you are, but, and, and I want you to catch it. So I've been pressing on, we need to admit our unbelief, but now I need to press on the other side. We do not glory in our unbelief. See, Jesus will accept you as you are if you come to him in faith and say, I believe, help my unbelief. I have all sorts of questions. I need you to help me. But Jesus will not leave you where you are. He will not say, that's great. Go write a book about it. He will meet you in that posture. I believe, help my unbelief. And in that spot, that faith-filled moment of Jesus, I need you to do something I can't. I I can't figure this out, but I'm coming to you and I'm asking you to do what I believe. Because I have all these sorts of questions about everything in life, but I do believe you are God and I do believe you are good. And so I'm going to ask you to help me resolve those things. It's as this man comes to him and says, I believe you are good, but I'm having a hard time. Would you help me? That Jesus comes through in his life in a profound way. And and, and we've got to expect that if Jesus is real, if he is the resurrected Lord of the universe, that he has poured out his spirit on all who believe, we've got to expect that this is the answer. Now, I'm not saying you're going to get that Ferrari. Some of you are like, I've been praying for a Ferrari for several years. Jesus hasn't done it, and so I'm wondering about his goodness. I'm not saying you're going to get the Ferrari. I'm saying Jesus will meet you there, and he might teach you um, that that's uh, inefficient gas-wise. Sorry, I'm a Californian. Um, That that'll get you lots of speeding tickets. Um, Sorry, that's my own past. Not that I've ever had a Ferrari. Some of you are like, how much do we pay you? Not enough to have a Ferrari. I don't have a Ferrari. Uh, I'm not saying you're going to get all the things you're praying for. I'm saying the living Christ will meet you in that prayer and give you exactly what you need. And sometimes what we need isn't what we think. Sometimes we don't see our kid get healed like here. Again, I don't want to like, sell you something to name it and claim it. I will sell you this, that Jesus loves you, and he knows what you need better than you do. And as you come to him in faith, he will give you everything that you would ask for if you knew everything he knows. This man comes and says, I believe. Would you help my unbelief? And it changes his story. And I believe that's why he's captured in Scripture here. Uh, He doesn't get a name, but he makes it in this story here because I believe he is in here. So we wouldn't just recognize the first fight of independence, but that we would also recognize the second fight of doubt. That we wouldn't be surprised when doubt comes in our life. That we would go, oh no, this happened before. And it's not just this story. There are several saints in the scriptures who go, God, what are you doing here right now? And when those days come, we can open this word and the Holy Spirit can reveal the resurrected Jesus to us. And just like he says to this man, he invites us, come, come, ask me. I want to help you there. I want to meet you in that place. That's what this man does. That's why I believe that this is captured in Scripture. And that's why this guy gets commended as a contrast to the disciples. If you zoom out this story, the people that should be faithful, like the disciples, they're the faithless ones. They're the ones, you know, they're doing ministry. They look very spiritual, but they ain't praying. And there's this dad who's racked with guilt, or excuse me, racked with doubt. 
He, he, he confesses unbelief. But when Mark tells the story, he's like, look at this guy. He's the one with belief. The disciples who had far more information, and they'll come around in the end. They had far more information, but they weren't praying. But this guy, he had had a very difficult life. He didn't know half the things about Jesus they knew. But he came in faith. And this is the key in Mark's gospel. Healing always comes on the other side of faith. Mark's telling us this man's faith was real, and this guy is commended as the contrast to the faithless disciples. That you can be filled like faith with this man if you will depend on Jesus to do what you cannot. So what do we practically do with this story? Well, this is where I was getting ahead of myself earlier, but here's how it finishes. Verse 28. And when he, Jesus, had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, um, hey, why couldn't we cast that demon out? Um, they're like, Jesus, apparently it wasn't like a demon that was unable to be cast out, because way to go, high five. But why couldn't we do it? Their question is, why are we not seeing glory in our life? Your glory cast out the d- demon, but why aren't we seeing it? We've seen it before. Why are we not seeing your power and your presence in our life Verse 29, and he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, immediately, I think we want to turn that into a formula, right? Like, what kind of prayer? What's the magic prayer? What do I have to say? How often do I have to pray? But you notice there's just a period there. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus isn't giving them another formula to follow. That was their problem in the first place. What he's inviting them into is relationship. He's inviting them. That's what prayer is. It's talking to God. Prayer is the means by which we express dependence. It's the means by which we express our faith. What he's inviting these guys into, he's saying the secret of having a glory-filled life in this messy, broken world, it's simply by asking me. It's simply by coming to me. It's when you come in prayer that the presence and power of Jesus can be unleashed in your life. And I know it sounds so simple. Like, I was like, how do I land the plane on this sermon? That sounds so simple, but it really is that simple. That we experience the presence and power of Jesus as we come in desperation and prayer. You remember what Pastor Jim said earlier? He said, the reason that we don't pray is because we're not desperate. But when you're desperate like this dad, you pray prayers like, I believe, help my unbelief. And so I want to just help you feel our desperation this morning because that is the key to the presence and power of Jesus being unleashed in your life. Right? I mean, this is, this is the essence of the gospel, right? Isn't the heart of the Christian faith that we are desperate for God? Isn't the heart of our faith that um, we cannot save ourselves? Isn't the heart of our faith that, yeah, though we were made to depend on God, as I said earlier, we have all failed to do that. And I don't just mean like 12 years ago, 20 years ago, some of you 82 years ago. I mean like 18 minutes ago on the way to church this morning, this past week. We have all, as the book of Romans says, uh, sinned and daily fall short of the glory of God. We daily um, depend on ourselves, and as a result, we experience failure and frustration just like the disciples. And the gospel is the good news that God looks at us trying to fix things on our own, run our own life, and his response is not, you dumb dumbs. What are you thinking? 
his response is that his heart is filled with love. That for God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, that Jesus comes into the world and he lives a perfect life showing us what does it look like to depend on God the Father with our life? What does it look like to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit as we go? And at the end of his perfect life, the only person that ever trusted God, he lays it down on the cross for us. For all the ways that you and I fail to trust Jesus, fail to trust him to be God, and we try to be our own gods, Jesus doesn't say, how dare you do that? He says, I want to rescue you from that. And so he comes and he dies in our place for our sins so he could take that baggage from us. So that he could take that darkness and take that death upon himself and leave it in the grave and rise again and say, for anyone who trusts in me, you get newness of life. And so now, no matter how you sinned or struggled or stumbled, or doubted this week, you can come to me and I want you to ask in my name. I want you to ask the Father in my name. Say, by the blood of Jesus, would you do this? Not because I'm worthy, but because he is worthy and I trust him to do what I can't do for myself. And that's where he says, when you ask in my name, my power will be unleashed in your life. And my question is, do you believe that? Like, I, I know that's the gospel we believe, but do you really believe that? That the only way you will get through this week without being smited for the way that you will sin and fail, fall short of the glory of God is the great grace of God that says, I want to redeem you. I want to love you. I sent my son. I've got no wrath left for you. I've got grace for you. And if you would just ask in my name, my power and my presence would be poured out in your life. Do you believe that? And if you do, I want to encourage you now as we respond to the sermon to simply respond as Jesus says to pray to talk to him some of you are like I am not sure if I believe that and I want to commend this father to you is a faithful example of what it looks like to respond to this sermon to say a part of me believes that but I don't know Jesus could you meet me in this space I think you might be surprised to see what he would do in your life if you would only ask for others of you, maybe you're struggling with independence, and I would simply ask you to pray this morning. God, I want to depend on you more, but I'm having a hard time doing it here. Would you help me? Um, this is where his power is unleashed in our life, and I can say these things knowing that he is glad to do it, because that is what we see in this text. And when we come to Jesus and ask him to move in our lives, when we say, I'm going to depend on you, I can't do it, but I believe you can, that is when the glory of the mountain begins to overtake our life and fill our life. And it happens in everyday ways. Like we become a little bit more loving and a little bit more forgiving. And we become a little bit... Um, uh, more of a reflection of the glory of God like we talked about last week. That happens as we come to him in prayer, we come to him in dependence. That is what unleashes the glory of the mountain in our everyday life as Jesus invades the chaos of life down here with his goodness and grace. Let me pray for us as we um, turn to him in prayer now. Jesus, you are, you are good. Even when life is not, even when we're on the bottom half of this picture. And, and so I pray right now um, 
for those in the room this morning that are struggling with that first fight of independence, says, no, he's talking about other people. I'm not that messed up. I pray that you would break them of their pride this morning, that they would see that you don't grade on a curve. You don't grade them against their neighbor, but you grade against your son, against your glorious standards. Would you bring us to the end of ourselves that we could stop pretending to be more than we are this morning? Help us see how much we need you. Um, Not that we would glory in our neediness, but that that neediness would drive us to Jesus and that we could glory in his sufficiency and his grace and what he has given to us. So I pray that you would help us to fight the pull of independence. I pray also for those that come in here and they're rattled with doubt like this dad. Would you send your Holy Spirit um, to reveal your love and your kindness and to woo in such a way that they might respond in faith this morning and say, Jesus, I don't have it all figured out, but I'll at least ask if you can help me figure that out. Would you be God this morning? Would you prove yourself to be who we see you are in this text? Would you give us a testimony as Fair Oaks Church that we can say, we know Jesus is alive and risen, not because of what we heard about 30 years ago, but because of how he is moving in our hearts and in our community today. Would you fill this place with your spirit? Would you make us a praying church, not because we feel guilty or we heard a sermon where the disciples failed to pray, but would you make us a praying church, not even because we're thinking about prayer, but we're so aware of our need, so aware of your sufficiency that we can't help but come to you and ask in your name. I ask that you do all of these things that we might know more of the life that you came for, that you would push back the work of Satan that wants to destroy in this community, that you would bring your life in this place and through us, bring your life to this community. We love you and ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.